Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We are also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. It was a big-time week for Canadian tennis with three titles. Layla Fernandez getting back in the winner's circle, Gabby Dabrowski and Aaron Routliff winning in Zhengzhou and also qualifying for the WTA Finals, and also Gabriel Diallo winning a challenger title in Bratislava. We'll talk about all that this week, and we've also got a returning guest to Matchpoint Canada. Pleased to welcome back John Wertheim. Uh, John is one of the foremost voices in the sport. Tennis fans, you're familiar with his work on television with the Tennis Channel. He's also an executive editor and senior writer for Sports Illustrated as well. Uh, John, it's great to have you back with us. Good to be here. How are you guys? Doing good, doing good. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, tell us, what have you been up to since uh, the U.S. Open uh, wrapped up uh, just over a month ago? How much tennis you've been covering and watching, and uh, and what's keeping you busy right now with the sport? Oh man, um, that's that's a good question. It's always such a weird time of the year. Um, sort of six, sixty minutes TV stuff is kind of uh, e- eaten up a lot of my time. Uh, we just made an announcement of a a, a film project uh, documentary with, with Chrissy with, with Chris Everton Martinez, sort of based on the the Sally Jenkins Washington Post story that you may have seen this summer. So that um, and you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's is this very strange time for tennis. It's it's great the sport is so global. It's great that there is an Asian swing in the fall, and we can expose uh, the sport to a new market. I I mean, I don't know. Speaking candidly, and I don't know if you found the same thing. It's I find it it's it's a challenge a bit to to follow the sport uh, for for these few weeks between yeah, we just... the, the time zones and the you know the, the events that are a week and a half. It's it's been it's been a little tough. How, how are you guys feeling? Yeah, we were just talking about that, eh, Ben, last week on the podcast mm-hmm. about how it, it is difficult. And I found it difficult when I used to be a kid watching the sport. Like, I'd check out after you at U.S. Open. And then even covering the sport, it's it's such a grind doing it for so many months of the year that it is hard, I find, to to sustain that interest, too, at the same level that you do throughout the you know the first part of the season and certainly throughout the four Grand Slams. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's kind of a recognizable lull post-U.S. Open when we've wrapped up all those four Grand Slams. I think the one good thing with social media in terms of driving some tennis content is we can, you know, create some interesting stories. And I know Mike and I talked about it the other week of Carlos Alcaraz, his chase for number one, him saying Novak Djokovic is always on his mind in practice. And now we're seeing, you know, a little bit of a slump from him. He hasn't won a title since Wimbledon, uh, struggles again going out in, in Shanghai. Do you think it's perhaps this kind of quest for number one, this push to get it back is maybe left him a, a little bit flustered? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I, I think the, the, you know, the, the numbers speak for themselves. And you look at what he did uh, the, the first half of the year through Wimbledon, through the middle of July, and you look at the results and the trail off since. And, you know, losing to Medvedev on a night where he didn't quite have it at the U.S. Open, that, that's one thing. I mean, losing to, you know, to Dimitrov is something else. Mm-hmm. I think some of this is just a function, honestly. And I think the same thing, people say, what's going on with, with Holger Runa? And I, I think for some of these players, they just hit a wall. And yeah. it's a lot of tennis, their commitments to play, their commitments from sponsors, there's still ranking points, there's still the chase for number one. I just think there's, there's sort of a, a finite number of tennis we can expect from these athletes. And, I mean, remember, Serena Williams, to some extent, Federer Nadal, they would essentially just shut it down and say, I'm, I'm out after the U.S. Open. Uh, I'm not made to play 
September, October, November tennis. And I think we're, we're getting a little bit of that. And I just, I, I wouldn't panic too much if I were an Alcaraz fan. I wouldn't panic too much if I were in his camp. I just think these players are, uh, they're, 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 they're human beings. And yes, um, I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, I caught that quote too, that Djokovic is still very much in Alcaraz's sights all the time. And that sort of has the makings of rivalry. But I just think it's really hard for, for everyone to just kind of sustain this level in, in the middle of October, 12 time zones from home, no more majors till Australia. I think we just we, – we ask a lot of the players if we expect them to sustain the, the level they have in, uh, you know, in the spring and the summer and keep it going after the U.S. Open. Yeah, and, and look, it's, it's an interesting – dichotomy I think right now between Alcaraz and, and Novak Djokovic obviously the age here being the biggest factor that Novak Djokovic after winning that U.S. Open very comfortably saying he's going to shut it down and take a break for for several weeks and uh, you know uh, surely come back refreshed for the ATP finals uh, still obviously uh, a legend like him has you know every every right to do that we've heard meantime Rafael Nadal is back training hard and and looking good and Craig Tiley says he's confirmed for the Australian Open Rafa didn't exactly say that uh you, you know you've you've done big sit down interviews with Rafa in the past I remember a, a story you did actually visiting him for for 60 minutes is it feasible he would come back again if he didn't think he could contend for titles that is a great question. And, you know, with, with some players, you say, well, they, they would like to have their victory lap or maybe their sponsor obligations. That's not how Nadal is really wired. Um, I do think that at, at his age and with all he's achieved, I, I do think he really wants to come back and not have the, you know, the, the sort of enduring the final memory be his his 20, you know, his, his 2023, which was obviously a disappointment on a number of levels. I think, I mean, I, I you know, and, I, and I've heard some some chatter, and I think he really, this summer, spent a lot of time figuring out, uh, you know, what do I want? Should I just throw in the towel? Do we give this one more shot? And I think you're right. Hovering is this big question. Okay, he can come back, but if he can't come back at peak Nadal, who's going to be the favorite to win Roland Garros, is it still worth it? And I, I think that there is an element of him that says, listen, I've achieved so much remember where the tour is going to be during this times, right? He's always loved Indian Wells and Larry Ellison. He's always obviously loved the, the European clay. Um, I, I could see him playing a highly abbreviated schedule, you know, Barcelona, Madrid, maybe Rome, Monte Carlo and calling it a career at Roland Garros, even if he is not really a contender to win titles. I, I think that it took him a while to get there, but my sense is he's going to give this thing one more shot. And if that means getting back to the level where he was, that's fantastic. And if that means being, you know, a, a 70% Rafa Nadal that can still go and, and get a send off and give a fans and have a, a final sort of savor and give fans one last memory other than him, you know, what, what he was, the, this, this year was basically a wash. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think he's ready to do that. Certainly hoping that we can see him back and, and be able to end his career on his own terms. Not every athlete gets to do that. Uh, Roger Federer just made an appearance at the Shanghai Masters to uh, receive an award from them and, and see the fans. And he seems quite comfortable in retirement. I want to ask you a bit of a Federer-Nadal question here. And, and you wrote a book on the two of them in their 2008 Wimbledon final called Strokes of Genius. Federer, to my knowledge, hasn't really picked up the racket and had any exhibition matches where he's gone around and and done a tour or anything like that. And maybe physically he still 
can't do that. But did you expect we might see him and Rafa when Rafa hangs up the racket, go on some sort of retirement tour and, and make some spots and, uh, you know, show their fans maybe one last glimpse of the two of them hitting the ball back and forth between each other? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I could see it if on, on a couple of uh, conditions. I mean, I think there would probably have to be some sort of greater purpose being served, whether it's a, you know, a, a philanthropic tie-in or whether this is a, you know, a rally for peace kind of thing. I mean, I don't think they would do it strictly as, as commerce, as a money-making event. And the other thing, too, is I, I think, um, you know, I, I think physically there's a real issue here. And I think um, cer- certainly Federer and, and who knows about Rafa. I mean, I think there is a real sense of, you know, I'm, I've, I've got kids and I want to uh, roll around with kids and grandkids and I need to think about my body long term. I, I can see Federer and Nadal, sure, going out there with a smile on their face. I mean, I don't think this would be, you know. Earnest, fierce competition. Exactly. I don't think it would be, uh, you know, no, no one's going to be uh, getting point penalties, arguing line calls. But if there were something, yeah, but even that, that the match for Africa before, um, I don't know if you guys remember that, right, right at the right before the pandemic in South Africa, I think it was one of the, the best attended sporting events and it raised all sorts of money for charity and, and brought tennis to uh, South Africa, which of course is where Federer's mom is from. I mean, I think if, Roth and Roger had some sort of greater purpose and benefit than just your, your run of the mill exhibition tour. Sure. I could, I could see them doing that. Yeah. Good point. Good point. And uh, yeah, I know tennis fans would love it. We'd love to see it. I remember catching some Sampras Agassi exhibitions after they hung up their rackets and yeah, not super competitive, but still fun to see yeah. them out there and, and kind of, uh, you know, going back and forth uh, verbally as well, a couple of times. Uh, I don't know if I could see Federer and Nadal doing that at each mm-hmm. other in the same way, mind you, but who knows? Um, in terms of current well, you, players... You remember... Uh, wait, you want, you want to take a detour here? Yeah, go for oh, it. Oh, I, I know what you're thinking of. Go ahead. This is this is worth uh, your your listeners' YouTube bandwidth. Uh, yeah. you, you remember that... Uh, it, was, it was I think it was called Hit for Haiti. Um, after the after the earthquake in Haiti, I, I blank it on, I don't know, maybe 20... Help me out here. 2011? At Indian Wells, something and, like that. Yeah, was that with Roger and Rafa? Yeah, exactly. So it was, Rafa, it was Rafa with Agassi, well. right? Yeah, exactly. So it was Rafa, Rafa, Agassi, Sampras, and, and Agassi, and, and you know, Agassi and Sampras sort of had some pretty intense exchanges at this charity match, and uh, there were some, you know, there was some verbal oh, yes. back and forth. This was, and my, uh, my, yeah. I wish Agassi I had called him cheap, Google. right? Yeah, exactly. And this was sort of like joking, not joking. And it was very mm. intense. And what I what I remember from that is that Rafa and Roger were looking at each other with this, oh, no, mom and dad are fighting look. Yeah. <laughs> and here here they are, you know, whatever, you know, you know, 15 and 20 years younger. And they sort of have this look on their face of what do we do now? And I, it was, you know, everybody <laughs> will remember it for the Sampras. Everyone will remember it for the Sampras Agassi beef and you know, how, how strange that these two guys who by then were deep in their 40s were having this battle. But I always remember that there was a real sweetness where Roger and Rafa were looking at each other the whole time, like, what are we supposed to do here? How awkward <laughs> is this? And I think it's sort of uh, in, a, in a weird way, it probably cemented their bond. But anyway, if, if Roger and Rafa get back out there to play exhibitions, I do not think uh, they will be playing out. Uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be settling scores from years past. Anyway, nice. little little digression. They're just too nice. Nice side story. I remember that. It got awkward real quick there. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, one guy who was super nice also was Hubert Hurkacz, and uh, what a great week for him in Shanghai, collecting the second Masters 1000 title of his career. We spoke with Hurkacz on the podcast this summer when he was in Toronto for the National Bank Open. 
super nice guy. Uh, I almost wonder at some level, is he too nice of a guy? And I'm wondering from your perspective, what do you think is holding him back from perhaps achieving this kind of success at a, at a grand slam level? Oh boy. Uh, I'm going to sound like a jerk here, but, but, but so are you. Cause I think you just said it. Um, he's really, really nice guy. And I think sometimes that can bleed over to his tennis. And this is someone who's got a lot of talent. He, you know, this is the guy he's won Miami too. I mean, this is a guy who's won yeah. some big titles, um, but it, just seems as though he just doesn't quite have that gear that that gear that says you know i am not leaving this court as anything but a winner and i might play great and i may have to you know crawl through the mud and eat grass to get there but i mean boy does this guy lose a lot of close matches and there are times when you know we've seen him lose two injured opponents we've seen him i don't know if you remember his match against Djokovic at Wimbledon, yep. where they they played, uh, you know, I, th- I think it was the quarter, I think maybe a round of fourth round match, and he, you know, by all rights should have won that match and just didn't come up with the goods when he had to. And this is a, a player who's who's you know very well liked in the locker room, and uh, you know, it's every, everyone likes the camp, everybody likes the coach. There, there's nothing sort of personally anything other than glowing you can say about the guy, but I think sometimes that bleeds over, and this is someone who I think. You know, and honestly, I mean, I think something that we we talk about sometimes um, on the air is that these reputations that that fans have and that we sort of know as as observers, opponents know that too. And I think it's a real issue that players on the other side of the net know, listen, here's a really nice guy, but if it's for all in the decisive set, I've got a real chance of winning this because this is someone that's been known to retreat a little. And Again, um, you know, this this is an absolute concierge level player. I mean, this is someone with with results that ninety percent of the tour would kill for, and he's got a lot of game, and he's still kind of at the prime of his career. But there are a lot of seven six seven six defeats. Um, again, I, I should have done this with, uh, with with Google up and running, but um, you know, I'm, I'm remembering a match in Miami he should have won, and it just it, you know you sort of go through his results and. There are a lot of three-set losses. There are a lot of six-four. But the fact that he just won um, beating Rublev in a tight match, I think, is a really good sign. And, you know, this is also doesn't mean it's cemented forever, right? I think sometimes we forget that, that there are all sorts of, you know, Yvonne Lendl, Kim Kleisers. I mean, there are all sorts of players we can point to who had a hard time mentally. And then once they sort of crossed that Rubicon, they were good. You know, no, no one ever called, you know, Yvonne Lendl will not be known as a choker the way he was for the first five or so years of his career. So maybe this is something that can be overcome. But I just think uh, Herkosh is such a nice player, but just doesn't quite, uh, what is it, Mary, Mary Carrillo, I think, calls it fangs. He just he just doesn't quite have that, that nasty gear, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. Um, and maybe this will be a, a turning point, this title, this weekend. Yeah, that that's well said, and I, I'm glad you referenced that Djokovic match at, at Wimbledon. And uh, I think for those who remember watching, it, it felt like he was thoroughly outplaying and having Novak on the back foot for the first two sets of that match, and and just couldn't find the finishing stroke. And you know, Djokov, Djokovic really winning a match like that through his mental resilience. But uh, her catch now with two career Masters 1000 titles, which is is so impressive. Uh, we we talked to the front of this conversation um, about maybe sort of the mental and physical toll of a a long tennis season. And I I saw you share some information that several players in the top 20 of the WTA apparently sent a letter calling the 
mental and physical toll of the tour, not sustainable in the long run. I, I just wanted to know what more have you heard on this story? What is the ask um, really here from these players? And and also, why do you gather, I guess, Iga and Coco, among uh, a few other top 20 players, did not sign this letter? Yeah, this was a, a letter someone had sent me that mo- the majority of the top 20, in start, you know, starting with number one, starting with Sabalenka, sent to the WTA essentially said, you know, we, there were, I, I don't have it in front of me, there were probably half a dozen um, demands. Some of them, you know, most of them honestly quite reasonable, uh, just typical what, what you'd expect, right? I mean, uh, some of these were about uh, playing conditions, some of these were about buys, some of these were about the schedule. Um, and then the, the big, the big sort of, you know, the big money item was literally the big money item, which asked for guaranteed wages, essentially a wage floor. Um, for the top 250 players, it sort of graduated up. So I think it was it was 500,000 for the top 100 and then sort of went down from there. But yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a big secret that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with among the players with the WTA in particular. Some of that is spilled into social media. Some of that comes from, uh, you know, some, some scheduling decisions, the year end final. It was interesting, as you say, that most of the players signed this. It's clearly had it the you know, the four letters PTPA, the Players Association, that was not on the letter. But if you look at who signed it, uh, there was a close correlation between the active players. Even though Paula Bedosa is not in the top 20, her name was on that. A number of Chinese players were on that. Um, the three names that weren't that stuck out to me were Iga Svantec, Coco Goff, and Jesse Pagula. And of course, uh, you know, you, you might ask, how much impact a demand letter can have when, you know, are arguably the three most marketable players uh, were at least, you know, two, two, two of the three, two of the three American, two of the three top Americans, two of the three top players um, are, are not signed on to that. But I think clearly there's a lot of player dissatisfaction on the WTA right now. Um, I think it probably reared ahead, you know, we're in October, players are tired. They feel like they're getting dragged all over the place until a few weeks ago. They didn't know where they were playing the finals. Some players one in Saudi Arabia, others less so. It's going to be in Mexico. But then hours later, we're supposed to start the Billie Jean King Cup in Seville. And I think it's all sort of come spilling out. So this this letter was, um, you know, I mean, honestly, it was it was quite reasonable. I don't, I don't think these demands would, would shock a lot of tennis fans. But the fact that you had this sort of a formal declaration and this many signatures, I mean, Marquette Vondrosova, Barbara Strachik, I mean, these, these were top flight players and the... Mm-hmm. Sort of the quality and quantity of names, I think, uh, you know, if I'm Steve Simon, I'm sitting up straight and taking notice. Yeah, I think this topic has, has been a point of contention, honestly, with with both tours for years. But normally you don't get uh, such a, a vast you know group of players speaking out. And it, of course, in years past, we didn't have something like a PTPA, which is, uh, you know, has formed and is gaining ground. You mentioned the WTA finals. I feel like it's going to be a, a heck of a lot better than last year where we didn't have the site for so long. And what a stacked roster. I mean, the three you mentioned with uh, Iga, Coco, Pagula, all going to be there, along with Arena Sabalenka, Rybakina, the two Czech players with uh, Vondrasova and Muhova. Ans Jabur is there. Uh, what do you make of this field? It, it feels like it is shaping up to be a, a terrific end of year tournament, at least. Yeah, and remember, it, it was a different market, but you know, Me- Mexico sort of got one of these finals two years ago, and it ended up being a real gem. So I think, I mean, the, the one thing I've heard is that, uh, and I don't know if, if global 
geopolitical events of, of the last uh, week or so might change this. Um, what I heard was that there was going to be a big announcement that Saudi Arabia will be hosting in 2024, 25, and 26. So on the one hand, yes, it's this great tennis party. The field will be stacked. It's a little weird to say, you know, th- thanks for filling in this year. In the next three years, we're going to be an ocean away. So it's not as though this is an event that's really going to, you know, the, the fans aren't going to feel as though they're building on something for the future. It's sort of a, a strange one-off. But no, I, th- I think the players are happy. I think for the most part, it's, it'll be a fun market. Who doesn't like Cancun? There'll be, you know, the, the, the photo ops and the beaches. And for a lot of players, it's going to be much less travel than they had anticipated. You hope that the entire field shows up. You hope that the crowds show up. I, I do think the ticket, as you say, I do think the atmosphere will be a lot different and more energetic than it was in, in Fort Worth last year. But, um, you know, this is the WTA's flagship event. This is where the tour gets most of its revenues. And it's had a really rough go since they played that final in China in 2019. Some of this COVID-related, some of this, the WTA's take on China, some of it, some, you know, so, some unforced errors, finding a bit more of a permanent home. So I, I think it'll be a fun one-off event. Um, it's just a bit, a bit of a pity for the host that they sort of won't apparently be building on anything for the future. It's just, let, let's have a fun week and then too bad, but next year it'll be somewhere else. Yeah, agreed. And, uh, you know, we want the season to end on a positive note and certainly the tennis between those eight players is going to be fantastic and, and nothing but positive, I'm sure. One other event I want to ask you about with uh, my last question here before we let you go, John, is about the Billie Jean King Cup uh, that's fast approaching. Canada's going to be there. Uh, they're led by Leila Annie Fernandez, who just won her first tournament in uh, quite a long time. So that's uh, reassuring for Canadian tennis fans. Rebecca Marino is going to be there. Gabby Dabrowski, who's been playing terrific in doubles lately. Uh, Jeannie Bouchard's back on the team in probably a supporting role, along with uh, young Canadian Marina Stakusik, um, who's going to be an upcoming guest of ours on the podcast too. Um, they're facing Team Poland without Igas Fiontek and Team Spain. How do you like the Canadian chances to move forward out of this pool? I like the Canadian chances to move forward out of this pool. No, it's been uh, quietly. It's been it's been a nice time for for Canadian tennis, and uh, you know B- Bianca's health is sort of first and, and foremost. But um, a nice nice week for for Fernandez as well. And I think you know it, it's a pity that um, you know we're not seeing full flush rosters at this event. But I do think, you know, what, what do we say? We, this is, uh, you know, boom, boom time for Canadian tennis, and this is a chance for uh, for, for, for the world to see it. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think Canada could come out of this quite quite strong. Unfortunately, you know, there will be some some incomplete rosters. I don't know if you saw that the U.S. team also uh, looks like Madison Keys will go, but I believe Coco Goff and Jesse Pagula are not. I mean, again, this is some of this is just uh, an offshoot of the scheduling. But, no, this is a chance for – a number of players to finish the year strong. And uh, yeah, we, we, we like all things Canadian tennis. So uh, good, good, good luck to you guys. Thank you so much, John. And uh, thanks always uh, for your time and perspective and uh, sharing those thoughts on our podcast. Really appreciate you coming on this week. You got it. Anytime. Take care, John. See ya. Thanks guys. Take care. That was John Wertheim and uh, great to have John back with us. What a, what a well-respected voice in the sport, and he's been doing it for so many years now in so many different capacities. For me, it was his writing with Sports Illustrated. I mean, I've got old copies mm-hmm. of that magazine from when I was a kid with his name on it. And then to be able to talk to him and engage with him, you know, in our current capacity, it's uh, it's really special when you think that that's someone that you grew up really, um, you know, listening to and, and learning from. 
Yeah, hundred percent. For for me, it's uh, those long form features on sixty minutes where I've seen him do a number, and and the one standing out and why I asked the question was he did do an amazing sit down back in Mallorca a few years ago with with Rafael Nadal, um, and actually he did the interview speaking in English, but allowed Nadal to answer in Spanish so he could go a little more in depth in his native tongue and feel a little more comfortable, which I thought was a really, really cool. We should talk a little bit more about obviously the fantastic week for Canadian tennis. As you said, Layla Fernandez getting her first title since March of last year. She beats a Katarina Siniakova three, six, six, four, six, four to win in Hong Kong. First title of the year, third of her career. She's back up to uh, world number 43 with this result, which is fantastic. And I gave myself a little bit of a pat on the back, Mike, because when we did do that YouTube um, video with Philip Fama, uh, I, I felt like she was turning a corner and that a good result was coming. I didn't know when, but I, I thought she was close. And uh, sure enough, she has a great week in Hong Kong. Yeah, and she had a good time recently in Guadalajara. I mean, we know she's always played well in Mexico. That's where her two previous career titles came from. And there she uh, she took out Elise Mertens in straight sets. Um, and, you know, she battled for two sets pretty hard against Sophia Kennan before going down. But yeah, it did seem like there were um, some gains happening. I think you felt maybe a little more optimistic than than I did. And maybe that's just the fact that Canadian tennis overall the last uh, you know few months and really this season overall, there's been a lot of of, of, of downtime of, of disappointments and and it hasn't been the uh, success that we've been sort of accustomed to over the last few years. But this is definitely finishing strong. And I know we're going to talk about Gabby Dabrowski, also a title winner recently and some big news for her and her partner as well for the end of the year. We're talking about Gabriel Diallo. I mean, it was a nice week for Canadian tennis to sort of bounce back and remind us what we're capable of and I don't think anyone you know here who's watched Leilani Fernandez the last few years has thought that she had disappeared and wouldn't be back again we were kind of waiting for it and this must be a big confidence boost for her I think she still has and and there's so much time I mean she's only 21 years old and she just turned 21 uh, like a month ago so there is so much time ahead for this uh, wonderful young athlete that we have here and I'm I'm very happy for her first and foremost on just a personal level because we know her and uh, and she's just such a great person. Yeah, and I I thought she really uh, shared a a big piece of her actually in that trophy ceremony where uh, when she spoke she said it had been a very tough couple of years um, for herself and for her team uh, trying to get this result and trying to get back on track and that she'd been working hard and these moments are what make the what makes the hard work pay off and that made me of course think about that brutal foot injury that she suffered at Roland Garros. Uh, just the other year to Martina Trevisan when, when she had made that quarterfinal run and we felt like she could have made a good push for the semis there and, you know, coming back that summer, but maybe not really 100% or not really looking like the usual Layla and maybe also pressures of trying to back up a U.S. Open final that she produced in 2021. So I'm sure it's a, a bit of a monkey off her back to to win a big title here in Hong Kong. And very fascinating round of 16 matchup to to face Mira Andreva, where Layla is the veteran of that match facing a 16-year-old. And they played a great match, Layla losing the first set, but but turning things around and taking it uh, in three. I thought that was, you know, one of those showdowns where I would love to see uh, plenty of future encounters between those two. Yeah, absolutely. Another big up-and-coming name in the sport that we're going to be talking about for, for years to come. And if we shift over to a more veteran Canadian, Gabby Dabrowski, another big win with Aaron Routliff. Boy, these two 
what a great decision for them to team up. And and I got to speak with Erin, uh, you know, not too long ago on the podcast and she opened up about how their partnership came to be and, and why it's clicking and what's working. And my goodness, now the fact that they've officially qualified for the WTA finals after only playing their first event together in August, that is absolutely fantastic. And I don't have the stats in front of me, but I wonder how many teams have qualified after joining forces so late in the season really speaks to uh, what a hot tandem they've been on the tour in the last yeah, couple it's, months. It, yeah, it's incredible. And and uh, they finalized our WTA finals on, on the double side. And very cool that we are sending two Canadians to the WTA finals in Cancun in doubles. I, I mean, and three, I think if you we, think of Aaron Rutliff also being uh, of, of three. Canadian origin. Yeah. I mean, we should, she, she grew up in Caledon, Ontario. She, she very much is, is Canadian as much as she is from New Zealand. So in a, in a sense, we are sending three Canadians all in doubles. Layla Fernandez will be there alongside Taylor Townsend, but yeah, two titles, one final in such a short time span and winning a grand slam. And you can see since winning that U S open, they've clearly just built off that momentum that they, they don't look like, they plan on stopping and and of course the team they beat in the final is one of the teams that is going to be at the WTA finals the japanese te- uh, team of ayoyama and shibahara so beating them in straight sets has to be a confidence boost bagula and goff will of course be playing together in doubles i mean the team that always scares me siniakova and krychikova that is a fearsome team yeah those czech doubles players are terrific and and they have so many different combinations even beyond those two in that country just so much depth there um, but, you know, for Gabby and Aaron, they're not just going there to uh, to enjoy the show or to, uh, you know, have the experience. They are going to be there to win it. And I absolutely think that the two of them could could pull it off. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if we shift over to the men's side and our Canadian success there, Gabriel Diallo uh, winning the challenger title at the Bratislava Open. The signature win here came early on in the week where he was facing the former U.S. Open champion Dominic Team. Uh, defeats him 6-1-4-6-7-6 in a pretty electric match. That was in the round of 16. And I think after you get a win like that, he was really you know riding on that momentum because he didn't face a player nearly as strong as that for the rest of the draw uh, and comfortably in the final, defeating Joris Delure of Germany 6-love-7-5. He's up to a career high of 130 now with this result. I, I think for me, the next step for Diallo now is cracking that top 100. Yeah, and the way it's going, it doesn't seem like it's going to be too far off if he continues at this pace. Um, it's amazing to me that Diallo is 22 years old, yet I think of him as being so much younger than Leila Annie Fernandez, who we just mentioned, yeah. because his mm-hmm. career is just getting going, but he's actually older than her. Uh, but what a fantastic summer he's had from getting his first uh, main draw ATP win here in Toronto this summer, uh, being a part of the, um, uh, the the squad, the Davis Cup squad, and a very important member. Um, you know, you would have thought earlier in the year that if he was on the squad, it would be in a supporting role, but he got to step up and play and earn some wins to help Canada move on, which is fantastic. Just all the experience that he's been able to accumulate this year, what it's going to mean for him moving forward. Uh, I'm, I'm super impressed and super excited to see what he can do in 2024. I think uh, the sky's the limit. There's going to be so many tournaments he can start to enter with that ranking, qualifying for some bigger tournaments that will have even more ranking point opportunities and and prize money opportunities. So Gabriel Diallo is definitely one to watch. And uh, again, just giving such a positive feeling right now for Canadian tennis to to close out the season. Um, and that's fantastic as well. 
Yeah, really, really strong note. I should uh, give a shout out to Alexi Gallarno, who made the semifinals at a challenger in, in California, and he's firmly inside the top 200 at, at 186. So I, I feel like both of these guys are on a similar strong trajectory right yes. now. And, and, and speaking of and speaking of challengers also, Ben, maybe you know, as we're about to end, but uh, we're going to be covering a challenger in a mm-hmm. week's time here in Toronto, which is the uh, 60K Tevlin Challenger that we always uh, stop in. And, and it's great to speak to some veteran players who will be there. It's great to see up-and-coming players. There's going to be a, a bunch of Canadians. Lane Sleeth is going to be there. Ariana Arsenault, Kayla Cross, I think Vicky Maboko as well. So um, for tennis fans in this city, definitely uh, an event you might want to come in and check out at the uh, Sobe Stadium, same place they have the National Bank open. And you and me are going to be there uh, recording interviews with uh, with some of the players, and we're always looking forward to that. Yeah, really excited for that. And as you mentioned with John, uh, just had the opportunity as well to st- uh, speak with Marina Stukusic, uh, who is continuing her calendar year in Saguenay. She'll be playing at the Tevlin Challenger and was also called onto the Billie Jean King Cup final squad uh, alongside Jeannie, Rebecca Marino, Gabby Dabrowski, Layla Fernandez. All of that is to come. Uh, so there's still more tennis on the calendar. Guys, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>